partners with Christ in suffering. We want to look after the introduction at Christ's suffering and how Paul related to that and then what that means to us in any suffering that we may endure. Partners with Christ in suffering, with a title like that, who would want to be connected with Christ? I mean, you come to Christ and you're going to get thrown to the lions or something. I thought that when a person became a Christian, only good things were supposed to happen. Well, the first century church didn't make that mistake in their thinking. Christians all over the world today are not mistaken in their thinking about suffering. Here is the reality of life. Everybody suffers somehow at some time or other. We want to understand that for a Christian, there is purpose and meaning in our suffering. And there is a sovereign God who is in absolute control of all of the suffering that we may endure. Why does any person on earth have to suffer? Because of sin, there is a curse on the earth, and that brings suffering. We see in Genesis, verse 17, chapter 3, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Now we can get in an air-conditioned John Deere and do something about those thorns and thistles. But I will assure you there will be some type of suffering that's connected with the fact that the world is under a curse. We have sickness, we have disease, we have problems. In the book of Job we learn something about suffering. Although affliction cometh not forth out of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Ever stirred the campfire and there goes the sparks? It's just the way it happens. And because man is born in sin, we are going to suffer. Some suffering can be avoided in a sense. Some cannot. God's in control of everything, but he does use means, and we can be wise and we can follow his ways and avoid a lot of suffering. We ought not to be looking for trouble, but to know that when it comes... It doesn't spring randomly out of the ground, and it doesn't just pop up from somewhere. Uh, It is under the control of a sovereign God. And he's moving toward a goal of my ultimate good in that suffering. Have you ever noticed how suffering gets your mind on the Lord? And we start thinking, now, what's what's going on here? Uh, What have I done? And I may need to examine my heart, but it's not in every case because of something I've done. Sometimes it's because he wants to bring me up to the next level of spiritual maturity, as we will see. What do you do when suffering arrives? Is it wrong to try to eliminate the pain or the suffering? No, you ought to use every lawful means possible to eliminate suffering. We ought to be out trying to help eliminate suffering in others. But when it does come and it's unavoidable, we have to submit ourselves to the will of God. We have examples of men in Scripture who sought to alleviate the pain and suffering. Paul, you remember, escaped over the wall in a basket when they were trying to kill him. 
Uh, When the Jews were after him, he appealed to Caesar to go with his case. When they were on the boat uh, sailing to Rome and the sailors were going to get in the lifeboat and jump ship, he told the captain of the ship, wait a minute, we can't be saved unless these guys stay on board because God uses means and he would use the means of sailors to sail the ship as they crashed into the rocks going into the island, not the soldiers. So there's no spiritual merit in punishing your body, maybe some athletic merit in some cases, but uh, we don't want to be those who would seek to punish our bodies because somehow that uh, makes us more pleasing to God when we're punishing ourselves for our own sins. Mortifying the flesh in Colossians 3 is talking about eliminating the deeds of the old nature. It's not talking about punishing your body in some way. If we can't ease the suffering, we submit to the will of God. God is all wise and he is all good. And sometimes we're tested in believing that, but it's true. Scripture tells us over and over. That fact is really our only basis for any consolation in suffering, that God is all wise, he knows what he's doing, and God is good. And he's working all things together for our good. He has orchestrated in his infinite wisdom and has a purpose in every suffering that comes along. And he wants to bring glory out of that. And he wants us to learn to depend upon him. He'll either deliver us from the suffering or he'll deliver us through the suffering and perhaps take us into his glorious kingdom. So, let's think about this. Unbelievers suffer because of their transgressions. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of transgressors is hard. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They do not know at what they stumble. They might appear to prosper for a while, but Psalm 73 tells us that their feet are set in slippery places. Number three, believers may suffer because of their transgressions in the same way that unbelievers suffer. And one of the tragic teachings in the church today is that you don't have to suffer if you sin, that you get a free pass on sin. God obviously removes the ultimate consequence of eternity in hell, but many times we would suffer in the same way. God is merciful. But he says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. If I as a Christian commit some crime, I will likely be prosecuted the same as an unbeliever would. But Christians suffer also in different ways. Believers also suffer because eventually they realize that their sin has grieved the Lord and has grieved others too. Unbelievers may have seared their consciences, but they still suffer from consequences. Christians can suffer from consequences, but they may also bear a load of guilt. John Bunyan, in his little treatise, Advice for Sufferers, gives us some good advice on suffering. He says, There is nothing next to God and His grace by Christ that can stand one in such good stead as a good and harmless conscience. 
if your conscience is clear and you're not bearing the burden of guilt, that's going to make it a little easier to suffer. You can think of King David who suffered because of his sin with Bathsheba. And you can think of Peter who went out and wept bitterly after he had denied the Lord. Now, if a person continues in sin that they know about and they're just continuing on in that direction, it's very likely that they're not Christians, not true Christians. They may be religious people. But if the Holy Spirit is present, the Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction over sin. Paul asks a good question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? We can all look back in our lives and see things that we did or that we thought about doing that we would be ashamed of now. Those things result in death. I might have thought it was fun back then, but now it's beginning to hurt a little bit. Ezekiel reminded God's people in his day of the same thing. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. So believers may realize that they have committed some sin that has grieved the heart of God and has grieved the heart of others too. But there is another way in which believers may suffer, and that's what we want to talk about today. Believers also suffer because eventually they realize that their sin has grieved the Lord. That's the one we just had. And number five would be believers also suffer because Christ suffered. Now, remember what we said, there will be suffering in this life, so we want to be sure we're suffering for the right thing and not the wrong things. How could we unfold the meaning of Paul's verse in verse 24 where he says he's going to fill up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ through his suffering? Well, let's see what Jesus said about suffering. John 15:15. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That is, if you're living the Christian life and people know about it, you will find some persecution. He tells us that several times in the Scriptures. Acts chapter 9 and verse 16, God is talking about Saul, who is going to become Paul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And then in 1 Peter 2.21, for even hereunto were you called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, that's not one of my favorite verses. But if I am a Christian, there will be some suffering and there will be some reasons for that. Is Paul just being cruel here? I don't think so. He knows that God is love, but he also knows that God has a purpose for suffering And he is foreseeing the glory that's going to come from that when I respond in the right way. Suffering draws us into fellowship with Christ. Not only that, but Paul tells us in Romans 8 and verse 17, 
And if children, if we are God's children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That verse means a lot to many people in the world today who are really suffering because of their faith in Christ. And we see the same thing again in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If it has to be, our suffering because of Christ is obviously the better way to suffer. And we're told that in 1 Peter 3, verse 17, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Christ suffering. Just how did Christ have to suffer? And how could Paul or we fill up what is lacking in his suffering? Now, we want to be very careful about this section. There are two ways in which Christ suffered. We see in Isaiah 53 a prophecy regarding his suffering. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Christ suffered as a human person throughout his entire earthly life. And remember, he was on a mission. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be morose and sad and wandering around, man of sorrows, but it does mean that we have a realistic perspective on life and that we understand that there will be suffering and that we know what to do with it when it comes. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, he entered into the human condition. He also saw, as he grew up to be a young man, he saw how people hated his father, and they hated his authority in their lives. And that grieved him. And that was a lot of the suffering that he endured on earth as a man, getting ready for the cross. I wonder if we have such a compassion for lost souls that it grieves us when people display their hatred for God or when they take his name in vain or when they just reject him out of hand. Well, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we read this, let's think about uh, ridicule suffering. They may not be beating us up on the street corner, but might get a little ridicule for our faith. Here's Christ, uh, Peter speaking about Christ, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Now that leads us into the second class of suffering for Christ. First, he suffered in the same way that we suffer 
Once you come out of that very comfortable place you have been in for nine months and you get out into this world, there will be some suffering. But now we're moving into a different type of suffering. Christ suffered when he died for our sins on the cross. Purpose was that we might be reconciled to God, presented to him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. It's the atonement. Purpose was established before the foundation of the earth, we're told in Scripture. And this is the way we know that Christ's suffering in the atonement was not the result of a fatal accident, a terrible tragedy, a martyr's death, or even the result of mob violence. It was the Father's plan from the beginning. This was the Lamb slain before the, from the foundation of the earth, we are told. Here's a difficult verse, Isaiah 53:10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now that didn't mean that the Father took some kind of pleasure in the suffering of Christ. What that meant was that his suffering on the cross satisfied God's plan. You see, we came to Christ in the atonement through a legal means. The highest law in the land executed Christ. And this satisfied God's divine justice. And that's the sense in which he was pleased with uh, Christ being bruised. Well, how does Paul's suffering relate to Christ's suffering? Paul was a man acquainted with suffering, and he talks in uh, 2 Corinthians all about his physical abuse. And after he gets through enumerating some floggings and things he had endured, here's what he has to say. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And there was a purpose in all that suffering because Paul says in today's lesson that he is rejoicing. It may be quite easy to look back on suffering when it's over and I'm sitting around in comfort and I can talk about how we used to have to work out three times a day in August after we won the championship in January. But Paul is in the midst of suffering and he is saying in our verse for today, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's the church. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. How could Paul fill up in his flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ? In this verse, the afflictions of Christ is not referring to his atonement when he bore the sins of the world. We have to be very careful what we say with regard to that. Here is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says, If I understand the New Testament aright, there's no place where we should be more careful to go with our minds fully operating than on the cross of Calvary's Hill. I'll tell you why. It's because this is the central thing. 
There is no truth concerning which the adversary, an enemy of our souls, is so anxious to muddle and confuse us as this particular truth. The history of the church is something that bears endless record to that fact. Let us put it like this. Those people who are not interested in doctrine say all they need to do is fall on their knees before the cross. They say they're not interested in the meaning. But my reply is that is impossible. Everybody has some view of the cross. And when you say you believe in Christ and look at the cross, you must ask yourself, what is it did you believe about the cross? You have your own interpretation. And because of the terrible danger of having the wrong interpretation, we must examine the truth and be certain we are biblical in our understanding of what happened upon the cross. Well, Paul is not in any way going to add to what took place on the cross. One widespread erroneous interpretation to this verse is the idea that Christ's atonement was in some way insufficient to accomplish the final redemption of fallen man. Individuals need to add something to that. The prayers of saints, as in St. George or St. Nicholas, penance, suffering in purgatory, prayers for the dead, the veneration of relics or angels, the sale of indulgences, good works, baptism, church tradition, or the intercession of Mary. Not that the Roman Catholic Church officially taught that all those things were necessarily added to the atonement of Christ, but that was the impression and that was the conclusion reached by millions. Here is a sample from the Council of Trent in 1547 A.D., Now, remember that this was supposedly infallible, so it cannot change. And I quote, If anyone says that justifying faith in nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema. End of quote. According to that view, justification is never completed in this life. Things have to be added to it until you are completely justified and then you go into God's presence. We would say you are completely justified when the blood of Christ is applied to your heart in conversion. Now, this filling up in the flesh of the sufferings lacking in Christ's affliction has been interpreted in a number of ways. But I believe the best meaning is a very simple one. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ refers to the suffering that the church is going to do, the church is going to endure until Christ comes. Now, if part of my body is suffering, my knee, for instance, if it uh, needs to send a little signal, somehow it sends an impulse up my spinal cord and it tells my head, hey, we're doing some suffering down here. You need to get in a new position. You need to stretch that knee out or whatever it may be. Well, my head is also suffering in the sense that that's where I'm doing the thinking about the suffering here. So I believe in a very real sense when the body of Christ suffers, Christ suffers also. If Christ were here today, in 2014, just as he was 2,000 years ago, would he be suffering? I think he would. Well, he's not here, but 
we are here. And he was hated in that day, and he suffered. And we will be hated in this day, and we will suffer, but we will be victorious. Paul had a desire that he expressed in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. What does that mean? Paul wanted to be conformed to Christ in his suffering. He wanted to bear whatever suffering was necessary for the cause of Christ. And he really did. Now, quickly, how can we be certain that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for the atonement of our sin? That we don't have to add anything to that? There's the question. Here's the answer. From Scripture, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then when he was praying as he was going toward the cross, he says in John 17, 4, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. At this point, there will be no more healing. There will be no more sermons. Nothing is left but the cross. And then while he is on the cross in John 19, 30, When he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is finished? The day is over. The atonement is completed. Everything that needed to be done for our redemption has been done. The commentators of the epistles explain more about that. And we see in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made his footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times, those who are sanctified. That's what Scripture has to say, that it is done, a one-time offering for sin. That's one reason we don't have a sacrifice that we're going to offer here as a picture of that final sacrifice. Now, how would that relate to my suffering? This is where we come in. So let's perk up our ears and see how do we fill up Uh, the afflictions of Christ that may be lacking. How do we join in the fellowship of his suffering? I think that means that we suffer in the same way that Christ suffered during his life on earth in the human condition. We mentioned the verse, Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you know what a cross is? It's an instrument of suffering. And my cross is not going to be the literal cross, likely that his cross was, but whatever suffering is coming my way, I need to bear it in the spirit and attitude of Christ. We suffer when we take up our cross and follow him. Was Jesus ever betrayed by those close to him? Well, yes. Was Jesus ever abandoned by those close to him? Was Jesus ever misunderstood 
by those who should have understood him. The religious people who knew the Old Testament and had studied the law and the prophets. Is this kind of hurtful treatment, excuse me, if this kind of hurtful treatment is not what I deserve, what do I deserve? Well, I deserve eternal condemnation, but I've been saved from that through His grace. Should I expect to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Well, no. Should I expect to be treated like Jesus was treated? Yes. If I'm living for Him, I can expect the world to hate it. We're going to suffer in the world anyway. We may as well suffer for righteousness' sake. And we have to learn how to do that because suffering is kind of going against the grain. Remember the purpose. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now here's an Old Testament verse that gives us some good insight on what we need to do. Malachi 2, 3, this is talking about the Messiah that's coming. But who may abide the day of His coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Three quick questions for us. Who are the sons of Levi? What is the offering? And who is doing the refining? Now look back in 1 Peter to chapter 2 and verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood now functions no more. You are a priesthood of believers. We are a holy priesthood priesthood. We're the ones who are going to offer up the sacrifice now. It's going to be a spiritual sacrifice. It's going to be a sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Also Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. According to Malachi, the Messiah is the refiner. He's the one in control of refining the metal in the silver, in the, in the fire, the silver in the fire. How should a Christian respond to personal suffering? Again, we're going back to First Peter because this is kind of the home-based chapter on suffering. First Peter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, for the will of God. If I am lying in the bed suffering, I'm probably not going to be planning my next greatest escapade into sin. I'm probably going to be wondering about the suffering and thinking if there's anything I did to bring that on myself. So here's how a Christian needs to respond quickly as we wrap it up. 
do not be astonished. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though something strange were happening to you. Zenidzo, strange. It means unusual. Fiery trials are not unusual for a Christian. So don't be surprised when they come. We don't see a lot of that persecution by the world in our country, but others have seen it as we heard in First Light. One time I was talking to a lady on the telephone, and she was really getting annoyed because she had some real suffering in her life. And she said, you know, I've tried to serve the Lord and be faithful to Him. Why is this happening to me? I said, don't waste your suffering. If it comes, and if it's unavoidable, and in her case it was, you just have to determine that you're going to respond to it in the character and attitude of Christ. Don't be astonished that it's happening would be the first thing. The next thing is, don't be surprised at the ones or one who may be bringing the suffering. Well, I can't believe it was so-and-so and so-and-so, fill in the blank. Remember, it was the religious people of Christ's day who abused him and put him on the cross. you just got to know that God uses all of these things to conform us to the character of Christ. So here's how you can avoid wasting your suffering. Don't get annoyed. Don't get irritated by the circumstances or with them, whoever they may be. Instead, trust the divine goldsmith because he knows what he's doing. Well, that leads us into number two. Don't be annoyed. And First Peter 4 and verse 13 Peter says, But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How should you respond? Don't be annoyed. Be happy. You're blessed. Now, sometimes we get discouraged and depressed. But it's one thing to be hurt. It's another thing to be hurt and annoyed. So we don't want to get into the annoyed part. And if, if I'm hurting some way and suffering, I can certainly take that to Christ. He's an expert. Sometimes people get agitated at the thought that they don't deserve this kind of treatment, even by God. What's the correct response to fiery trials? Don't be annoyed, but rejoice. Now, let me say that there are certain people with certain spiritual gifts, maybe temperaments, and it's easier for them to rejoice than it is others. It seemed to be easier for Paul to rejoice than it was Elijah. Number three, don't be ashamed, 1 Peter 4, 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God on this behalf. Don't be astonished, don't be annoyed, don't be ashamed. If you're a Christian, you don't have to be ashamed of anything that's right. You can be ashamed of what's wrong and avoid it. I tell you some guys who were not ashamed, Paul and Silas. At midnight, they were praying right out loud and singing praises unto God. And the whole prison heard them. And evidently, that brought great glory to God because He just opened up all of the doors to the prison. But they didn't try to escape. They led the jailer and his family to Christ. And God was further glorified. Praise is a good cure 
for suffering and shame. The last one, number four, be ready for action. In verse 17 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin with us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of our God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, what shall the ungodly and the sinners do? It's only fitting that judgment would begin with us because we have had the light. We know better. That word judgment comes from a word, crino. It means to distinguish. And there's a way that God can easily distinguish who are the true sheep and who are those who may mistakenly thought they were sheep, but they were not. Now, we read it in that verse, but I'll give you a hint. You see that middle part that says, Obey the gospel of God? Well, here's 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, same thing. And to give to those who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Do you believe the gospel or do you obey the gospel or hopefully both? Now some will say, wait a minute, that's salvation by works. You don't have to do anything in order to be a Christian. Yes, but if your heart is truly regenerated, you will obey the gospel. So that's a good test for us. Are we obeying the gospel? Do we really love the Lord? When your next experience of suffering comes along, remember Peter's analogy of fiery trial because gold is refined in the fire. And we've seen that in the life of Joseph. We just got through studying Joseph. We've seen it in the life of Job. We've seen it in the life of Paul. We've seen it all over the scriptures there. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He didn't say Caesar's prisoner. He said his prisoner, the Lord's prisoner. God was in control of his bonds and used his bonds to bring many to Christ. It's the divine goldsmith who knows just how much heat to apply to make the purest metal. The devil would use the same fire to destroy him, but he can't get to the thermostat. It's the goldsmith that controls the thermostat. Do we find it strange that goldsmith would use fiery trials to refine his ore? Not according to Scripture. Now remember, the refiner's fire will harden the reprobate, but it will purify the Christian. Would you choose the refiner's fire? I wouldn't. I would say that kind of stuff is for John Newton, John Bunyan, some of those guys. Maybe that would help them. I wouldn't choose the refiner's fire. But God knows exactly what I need. He puts me there for a good purpose. I close with a little poem and a verse. I don't know who wrote the poem. I got the poem from my former pastor. It's entitled The Refiner's Fire. He sat by a fire of sevenfold heat as he watched by the precious ore. And the closer he bent with a searching gaze as he heated it more and more. 
He knew he had ore that could stand the test, and he wanted the finest gold to mold as a crown for the king to wear and set with gems of a price untold. So he laid our gold in the burning fire, though fain we would have said to him, Nay, he watched the dross that we had not seen as it melted and passed away. And the gold grew brighter and yet more bright, but our eyes were so dimmed with tears, we saw but the fire, not the master's hand, and questioned with anxious fears. Yet our gold shone out with a richer glow as it mirrored a form from above that bent o'er the fire, though unseen by us, with a look of ineffable love. Can we think that it pleases his loving heart to cause us a moment's pain? Ah, no, but he seeth through the present cross the bliss of eternal gain. So he waited there with a watchful eye, with a love that is strong and sure, and his goal did not suffer a bit more heat than was needed to make it pure. Second Corinthians 1, 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this day that there is hope in this life. And there is joy, there is gladness, there is the future that we look forward to that you have promised us an inheritance that would never perish, kept in heaven for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you've made it clear that you have provided a means of our redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross. Thank you for the work that you did there, the spiritual, legal work of rendering satisfaction for our sin and making righteousness available to us. We thank you for that. And we thank you that you ever live to intercede for us in heaven. Lord, I'm sure there would be people here today who are suffering. Maybe it would be something of their own doing or something beyond their control. First, I would pray that they might come to you in true repentance and saving faith so that they would have the help that you promise to those who are suffering, the consolation that abounds through Christ. Uh, Lord, thank you that if we are willing to admit our sin and ask you for forgiveness and ask you to take control of our lives and make us to be like yourself, that you will do it through the power of your Spirit. And then, Lord, for those who are believers who may be suffering, I would ask that these scriptures that we have considered today would bring hope and healing, would bring comfort in the midst of suffering. Lord, we see a lost and dying world that's suffering. Thank you for the report from Romania this morning. Thank you for your light that's beginning to dawn there. And Lord, we pray for your servants who are actively at work there and all over the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would alleviate the suffering of your people who are being persecuted around the world. Thank you for your many blessings. Thank you for the temporal uh, things that we enjoy from your hand of goodness. We pray that we might invest those things in your kingdom's purposes. 
And we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.